surgical palliative care may seem counterintuitive, but surgeons have a rich history of palliating both their patients and their families. I am Red Hoffman, an acute care surgeon, board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. Join me as I interview the founders and the leaders of the surgical palliative care movement a diverse group of surgeons dedicated to providing high-quality palliative medicine to all surgical patients. Welcome to the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. We heal with more than steel. Hi, everyone. This is Red Hoffman. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Patricia Murphy. Pat Murphy is a nurse with a PhD in nursing research, an associate clinical professor, clinical ethicist, and a grief therapist in the Department of Surgery at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. She is an author and researcher who has worked closely with Dr. Ann Mosenthal, the mother of surgical palliative care, to integrate palliative medicine into the care of surgical and trauma patients. Pat, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you. I'm really happy to be here. Excellent. So Pat, as we're getting started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you trained, and why you decided to become a nurse? Okay. I'm a third generation New Jersey person. Jersey City, New Jersey is where I was born. I have been a nurse for a long time. I graduated nursing school in 69. And I spent a large part of the early part of my career in intensive care. I love the work in intensive care. I really enjoyed working three to 11. And one of my favorite reasons for doing that was uh, families. Families were more prevalent in the uh, afternoon and evening hours. I chose to go back to graduate school after I got my bachelor's. This is an interesting story. It was 1973, and I wanted to get a master's in critical care. That's where my heart was. I had two little kids. Rutgers University was the state school, and I went there because they had the only master's program in New Jersey, and I went looking for one in critical care. And they said to me, sorry, the only master's program we have is in psych. And I said, I hate psych. (laughs) They gave me money. Um, It was a two-year program with 63 credits and a thesis. It was probably the best decision I made of my life because it really did help me sort. I've never worked in psych in my life. I took all of that knowledge and experience back to the critical care unit. It taught me to be comfortable with people in pain it really was a, a smart thing to do. And, and I didn't do it deliberately. <laughs> I did it because um, it was in New Jersey. It was the only program. And they gave me lots of money to do it. After that, I guess it was the year right after that, I spent some time with Cooper Ross. And that was really a profound experience for me. I spent two weeks with her. And it was quite interesting. We went off with this, 14 of us, to this go away seminar with her and we all brought pencils and papers and thought oh this is great we're going to learn how to care for dying people and what to say and how to say it 
what we did was spend most of the time learning how to think about our own death. And that was really important. She taught us that we really needed to start with ourselves. So I did that. And, and then in 1980, and then I started teaching at Rutgers. I was teaching in the School of Nursing after finishing my master's. And I always believe one should not teach what they don't do. And so I would spend summers and weekends working in the intensive care unit at University Hospital. And I never really did teach psych. I taught in the acute care department. When I was in graduate school, though, I was very unique. I would write papers on the psychodynamics of a myocardial infarction. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, there's a lot of psychodynamics in a myocardial infarction, believe me. Especially if you look at the family and the dynamics in the family and all that stuff. Got this faculty appointment at Rutgers and enjoyed teaching. I love teaching. Spent 1980 doing a fellowship in ethics at Georgetown with other critical care types. Came back still teaching in New Jersey and liking it. Got appointed to the New Jersey Bioethics Commission, which was very important. We were the the group that wrote the advanced directive legislation and the neurological criteria for death legislation and really loved families and being with families at their most awful time. So I wound up at university hospital working in, in MICU and then going down to the director of nursing and saying, you know, lots of people can do what I do, but I have this unique thing around bereavement and I really did understand and had studied and my thesis was on death. I went back to NYU and got a doctorate all about the death of a parent when a child is young. And so loss and grief was very much a part of what I was doing. So I said to this director, I, you know, anybody can do the MICU stuff, but this is a unique thing I have. And she was wonderful. And she said, go for it. So I wrote a job description and had part-time work at University Hospital doing bereavement work, mostly in trauma. I spent a lot of time in trauma. The residents there used to call me the, oh my God, person. (laughs) Three kids would be in an accident, two of them would be dead, the family's in the waiting room. Somebody would say, oh my God, go back, Murphy. So I wound up up being the bad news person. Um, And I was on call for 37 years. I had a beeper for 37 years. And never resented getting called at two in the morning because I knew that meant some poor resident don't didn't know what to do and I could help him or her do it. Spent some Christmas days there, lots of holidays, missed a lot of soccer games for my kids, but they're all grown up and they understand. And that's why I'm in the Department of Surgery because the surgeons realized I can't do this. Um, we better make her a faculty member so that you know she can help us do this. But in my heart, I am a nurse. And, and everybody needs to know that nursing equals palliative care. We were the original palliative care people. Back when there was nothing else you could do for a patient who was dying but sit there and hold their hand. That's what we did. We, oh, I love that, Pat. It's true. I mean, when, when we couldn't do anything because there was no medicine that would help anybody, but they needed the caring presence of another human being. And that's what nurses are. At least that's what we've always been. So ICU, ethics, bereavement, all put together into a position of 
clinical ethics. So that's what I teach in the med school. I teach the first year guys about ethics and stuff. I give the bad news lecture, which I've given for years. Uh, in fact, I've done that bad news lecture for so long with three different videos and how to do it right that there are docs I meet on elevators with gray hair who say to me, bad news, is that you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've done that for about 20 years, that bad news lecture. So I've updated, of course, but they recognize me as the bad news person. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, when I go visit people in the hospital, they get very nervous. Like I I once went to visit a friend who had a baby and I I went up to the OB unit and they were like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me say, Pat, one of the first times I heard your name was when I was reading Dr. Jessica Uh Zitter's book, Extreme (laughs) Measures. I know you know what's coming. Uh So for the audience who doesn't know, Dr. Jessica Zitter is a well-known palliative care provider who was featured in the movie Extremis on Netflix and then wrote this great book, Extreme Measures. So in this book, Pat, she recounts a story about you (laughs) um, that occurred during her training. She writes that she was placing a dialysis catheter into the neck of a critically ill dying patient and that you stopped in the doorway and placed a kind of a, your fingers to your head, like a gun and said out loud, call the police. They're torturing a patient in the ICU at university hospital. (laughs) So I'm wondering, I don't know if you remember this particular moment, but if you can at least reflect upon the message that you were trying to impart to Dr. Zitter as a young trainee. Well, it wasn't a guy. Oh, a phone, a phone, right. Oh, I'm sorry. Like yes, was, that you were calling. <laughs> I, made, see, I made like I was making a phone call. Um, Jessica was, was the, the attending, in, a critical oh, care okay. attending in the, IC, in the MICU. She was new at it. She had finished her residency, et cetera. She was kind of new at it. She was, she's a great person. She's a little frenetic and I love her dearly, but she's a, she gets things done. You know, she's really smart and she gets things done. And, and she was on that track of getting things done. And this was a clearly dying patient. And in her heart, she knew it. And, and the husband was there and she didn't want to do what she was doing. Yeah, and we were up in the unit because we were on, we had the Aetna grant, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But so we were there, and um, I remember looking at this poor husband; he was so scared. And and I just said, Jessica, <laughs> after I after I told her I was going to call the police. I mean, really? And something she she says that something happened to her at that moment. That you know she looked at that patient is more than someone who has to have this done immediately. Um, and, and she said that for her, that was a, a real turning point. Um, and I'm very grateful to have been part of her awakening. Um, but yes, I, I often will use humor to sometimes wake people up. I also can be um, pushy, but I got the message across. she really slowed down and learned more about palliative care. And now that's mostly what she does is palliative care. It's very cool. So one of the things that I, that really struck me when I was doing my surgical critical care fellowship was how much moral injury bedside nurses, particularly those in the ICU are exposed to when they are required to care for critically ill and injured patients who are, 
you know, oftentimes receiving care that may not be aligned with their goals. And I'm wondering, as a nurse, if you have any tips for nurses on how best to communicate with physicians about their concerns regarding patient suffering. Oh, that's a big one. Um, New nurses have the hardest time because they're not real sure of themselves yet. And so you put a new nurse with an old doc and you've got problems. What has to happen is outside of the unit, they need to talk to each other about about everything, but particularly about moral distress and, and the moral distress that both of them are feeling. One of them will admit it and the other one usually doesn't. Um, I do know that as you get older, people listen to you more. You get more initials after your name. But nurses, nurses' life is to care for a patient. And when, when they see that the care is causing more harm than good, they need, we need to own it. We need to speak up about it, maybe not in front of the patient, but certainly outside of that. And, and I think they need to work in an environment that encourages that, encourages them to speak up. When, when Ann and I did, did the grant, the first, the, the RWJ grant in SICU to in, introduce more palliative care into surgical trauma, we added this question to the rounds and, and we particularly asked the nurses, would you be surprised if this patient died during this admission? And we asked everybody on the team, but we made the nurses feel very much a part of, of that process. And very often everybody would agree, no, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. Yeah. The moral distress, the tragedy of this, my friend just told me the other day um, that her her friend and another friend had, had a total of five nurses in the family, young new grads, and they're all leaving. They're all leaving the profession. They came through the COVID thing and it just destroyed them. And that's because I don't think in, in their education, we're teaching them that it's not about saving lives. It's about being with patients and families, no matter what the journey but I, it makes me very sad to think that, that all these new nurses are, are leaving because of the stress caused by the COVID epidemic. It was horrible. I've got lots of friends who still work at University Hospital. It was really hard, but they took care of each other. And, and I'm not sure there's enough of that. I think we need a lot more of that. Nurses have a lot of knowledge about the patient and their families Nurses spend 12 hours a day in the intensive care unit at the bedside. So the, the key, I think, is until they turn into pushy ones like me, we need to encourage them and, and include them as we're talking about making decisions. I think um, any good administrators in the unit, any good clinical directors of unit would make sure the nurses had a voice. That's really important, especially the young ones. Yeah, I think oftentimes, like on rounds, it's really, I mean, I try to teach my residents this, that once you're the attending, you're in charge of the team. And part of that being in charge is making sure that everyone is okay. And, you know, that feeling complete with whatever we're doing. And part of that is checking in and like inviting people to give their opinion, because there is definitely a power differential that 
it is very true, especially with our younger nurses. Whereas the older nurses will tell me what they think and what yes. they think I should do, which is and fine. You better listen to but them. Yes, <laughs> believe me, I, I know. I always, I always um, <laughs> remember how many, how many brand new residents on July second I saved, um, <laughs> and they learned right away that you know you better, you should listen to the experienced nurses because they've been there. Yeah. And they definitely, you just develop a sense mm-hmm. from being at the bedside and again, spending so much time with the family. Uh, but the other, there's one more piece. I'm sorry for interrupting, but there's just one more piece that I thought about and it, and it's the difference in medicine and nursing. Nurses don't believe they own the patient. Mm. And there are some older docs and maybe even some younger ones who feel that it's their patient and they own that patient. And therefore, don't you talk to my patient about that and et cetera, et cetera. Nurses don't think that they own the patient. They think that the patient's part of their team that they have to work with. Um, I think that's different. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. I've not, I've not really thought about it like that. And it is interesting, especially with surgeons, because there is that sense of ownership. And in a way, we want that ownership because we operated on someone and we feel very connected to them and responsible for them. But it's true that like, there's more than one opinion that matters here, especially the opinion that someone of someone who's sitting at the bedside for so many hours a day when we kind of rush in and out. Let me tell you a little bit about the history with Dr. Mosenthal, who's my, my dear friend. I was at university hospital working full time doing ethics and bereavement. That, that was my title, right? And, and ethics and bereavement is palliative care. <laughs> and I went in to see David Livingston, who's a good friend of mine. He's the, he was chief of trauma. And I said, PDIA just came out with this call for whatever, a P, you know, call. Like a, a grant call? Yeah, yeah. I said, and it wants a team. And you and I would be a really good team. And he read it over and he said, nope, I'm an associate professor. They, they want an assistant professor. You know, they wanted somebody in, earlier in their career. So he said to me, we got this new, new attending. I think you'll like her. So he calls Anne and she comes in and we sit down and we review this and wow, this will be great. Let's do this. So we go off to PDIA. The great story here. You know about PDIA? No. Pl- and please ah, tell us what it sorry. is. It's the project on death in America. It, had seven, eight cohorts, eight different cohorts of people. And it was, ni- it was 1999, 2000. And believe me, anybody who's made a name in their world of palliative care was part of this early on in their career. And all it was, was bringing people together to help them know each other. We went off to Lake Tahoe every year for a week and it was awesome. Um, bringing people together to think profound thoughts about palliative care. There wasn't any real, like you have to produce this. You know, we, we did a lot of thinking. We got together. We did some publishing. But there were, I was in cohort, Ann and I were in cohort six, and there were, I think, eight of us. Um, but Randy Curtis, Ira Bayak, I, um, Bob, any, everybody who's now, you know, a big name in the field was one of, probably one of the cohorts in PDIA. Um, and it was just wonderful. When we went for the interview, that was fun. So Anna and I go off to the interview and Kathy Foley's one of the people and a lot of geriatricians, you know, and, and we were the only, I said, we had such a hook. I mean, you think about it, you know, 
trauma <laughs> surgery when all the other folks that were up for this were like medicine and geriatrics. And so we go for the interview and, and they're asking us questions about yada, yada, yada. And <laughs> Anne says something about moving people out of the unit. She said, yes, we want, we try and get them out in three days. We, we do a peg, a trach and a greenfield filter, you know, usually in three days so we can get them out. And their faces were like horrified. You know? <laughs> oh my goodness. You do that. And then, and then Anne says, and Pat tells me in every case, that's not such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> of course we got that. And it was wonderful. It was two or three years of just learning more about the field. And then came the Robert Wood Johnson grant. And that was powerful. Well, we were one of five in the country. It was to integrate palliative care into the surgical intensive care unit. And we worked really hard. And what we did that worked there's anybody out there who wants to learn this stuff. What worked is you never give them more work ever. You always take what they do and put something in it so that on rounds, would you be surprised, right? One of the biggest changes we saw and effects that we had, I think, was every trauma death is reviewed every month. And, and they always answered this series of questions about the death. So Anne and I added to that series of questions, was the patient a DNR? Was the, there a goals of care discussion? What that became was a consciousness raiser for all the trauma surgeons and the residents. It really did wake people up, you know. When was, the, was there a DNR? And if there was, when did it happen? Oh, there were like two minutes before the patient died or whatever. It changed practices in our trauma unit, very much so. Um, Families had to, we had to have a, a meeting within 72 hours because of the weekend. We also got these great big get to know me posters and we posted them in every patient's room. And it said, you know, who, who am I? What do I do? What, who, what's my family? Who's my dog? You know, and we had families put up pictures so that people got to know who this person was in the bed, not just, you know, the motor vehicle crash from last night. We worked really hard, made major changes. I actually saw one of the trauma surgeons from a long time ago, and I said, are you still using that? He said, we don't have to. It's baked in. We're still, we, don't, we don't need to, to add that anymore. It's just baked into what we do. One of the residents, the chief resident who was leaving, I think he went to Brown, I'm not sure, during the second year of this grant, I said, this is going to be fun, Joe. How are you doing? He said, I know more about palliative care than I know about trauma surgery. And I said, I said, you know what, you got the rest of your life to learn about trauma surgery. I have a question for that family meeting that was occurring within 72 hours. Was that the surgical ICU team that was holding that meeting? Or were you calling in a palliative care team to do that? We didn't have a palliative care team. We are the palliative care team. You know? um, okay. But it was both what we usually had a resident an attending or, uh, or two residents and somebody from, we called, we started out calling ourselves the family support team because that was very non-threatening, you know, and it was me, an advanced practice nurse and two clinical counselor types. And that was it. And th they were people I hired on the grant to try and move this forward. So we would role model for them in the beginning, you know, and then we eventually, after they'd been to like six or seven meetings, they would start, we'd say, all right, you try now, right? I think one of the things that 
that is problematic about palliative care teams is that they're not always available. And that's why I feel really strongly, and that's part of the point of this podcast, is that I want all surgeons to feel empowered that they can do their own primary palliative care. And that includes doing a family meeting because in the middle of the night or on the weekend, or sometimes the palliative care team is so busy, they can't get to the family until the next day or the day after that we need to be doing this work and that we can do this work with just a little bit of training. Exactly. And, and it's the, the basic palliative care stuff is not hard. You know, you have to be comfortable with people in pain, emotional pain. You have to not try and fix it, which mm. is so surgery, <laughs> helping them understand there's some things they can't fix and integrating that into your, who you are and realizing you can't fix it and then not run away from the, the pain. So giving bad news is something surgeons do all the time. And there really is a skill set that comes with how to do that. And, and they need to learn that. And they learn it by watching people do it and then practicing with someone watching them. Can you give a few tips on that? Sit down. Find out what the family knows about what's going on. Always start with what they know. Don't just go in there with your laundry list of what you've done and when you did it. Classic example, we had a years ago, a patient come in, essentially a DOA. And then the mom shows up. It was a gunshot wound. And the mom shows up and is sitting in the room. And the resident comes in and starts going through this long laundry list of all that, he, that they did. And she says, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. This doesn't make sense. The police came to my house and told me he was dead. So you see where I'm going with that? The family, nobody asked his family what they knew. He was just going through all this list of things that they did. I would have said, you know, what, what do you know? And she would have said, the police came to the house and told me he was dead. And I would have said, okay, how are you? You know, when do you want to see him? That the other piece I think that's so important is you need to recognize that going downstairs and being with that family when you give bad news is palliative care. And that's what, that's really what our surgical um, intensive care grant was about, was broadening the definition because you're doing palliative care with that family. You're preventing them from having awfulness in the rest of their life. You're letting them go and sit with the person they who's dead. You're letting them wash the person if they want to, you know, you're providing all the kinds of things nurses do. (laughs) Um, You're providing all the things that that family may need right then and there. And that's palliative care. I feel so strongly about that. I feel like all that stuff we do with the family as some as a patient is dying is like this sets the stage for their grieving and for their recovery, because this is the stuff that people remember 2030 years later. Absolutely. I, I had a private practice in Morristown, uh, the Grief and Loss Center. And, and I remember particularly one woman who cried and cried and cried in my office because 10 years ago, she had signed for DNR. Remember when we used to make them do that? Yes, which is awful. Actually, oh, that was some lawyer saying, cover your butt. Um, that was not what's clinically right. And she, she thought that because she signed that, she killed him. And and we did that to her. Yeah, we did that to her, and it's so cruel. 
Um, and, and so is asking people, do you want us to resuscitate them? That's very cruel and mean. That's asking them to practice medicine. How do you suggest what? we have that conversation instead? Oh, it's, it, it, this is another talk I, I give to the residents all the time. Um, find out what they know. Tell them all the things you're going to do. I'm going to get him out of pain. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure his skin stays intact. I'm going to do this. How about the kids? Should we bring in the kids? I'll get the social worker to help. We're going to go through all the things we are going to do. And then we're going to say, but I don't, I'm not going to recommend things that have high risk and no benefit. And this is one of them. So do the risk benefit analysis, help them understand that you, you know, the, the, you have a knowledge base on, on whether this patient's going to survive or not. And if it would make any difference to jump on his chest. Um, so that you need to be the authority on this. I mean, everybody gets their information about DNR from the movies and from TV. And all the data shows us that 75% of people on TV get resuscitated and go home. And that's just not reality. And, and, but when you're talking to families, realize that that's what they know. That's all they know. So sit down, find out what they know, tell them how hard you're working. And you know what? You don't have to have a long-term relationship with someone to do this. You just have to have a level of trust. And that level of trust can be built in a couple of hours. Because you're always telling them the truth. You're letting them see the person they love. You're, you're helping them understand what's going on. And you're the authority on medical issues. We don't go out to the family member and say, which fourth generation cephalosporin should I put your mother on? Right. The same thing is true when we go out and say, do you want everything done? No, I, I just want half. I didn't like her that much. I mean, seriously, how can you possibly answer that question if you're a lay person? Yeah. And also, I, I feel really strongly about this idea of like decisional burden that if I'm, I'm putting that on the family, again, like you said, that's what the that's the legacy they live with the rest of their yeah. life. And it's yeah. interesting. Recently, I was talking to a colleague of mine who, you know, we had one of these devastating brain injuries that we knew was never going to recover. They weren't brain dead, but they were never going to recover. And, you know, the family's asking, is there any chance? And he said to me, I told them there was no chance because All there's 99.9% right. <laughs> chance. That, and, and so he said, do you think that's okay? And I said, I think it is because I think it takes the burden mm -hmm. off of the family. And, you know, is it uncomfortable for me to say there's absolutely no chance when there might be the tiniest chance? Yeah, it's uncomfortable, but that's why I get paid what I get paid. Right. I feel like it's part right. of my job to sit with that uncomfortability. Mm -hmm. I don't want the family mm -hmm. stressing about that because... And you're talking to people who play the lottery. Right. Mm, so I mean, true. really? <laughs> yeah. Really? I, there was someplace else I was going with that and I lost it, but it'll come back. The train has left the station, but it will return. <laughs> um, okay. I'm it's, it's really important for the docs to own this. It's really important. And, and there are lots of times that nurses can help with this. Um, nurses can help move people, family members towards that decision. I know where I was going. All the time I hear these young, the young ones say, oh, no, no. The patient families ask me, what would I do? And they, they, they back away from that because some old guy in gray hair in medical school told them never answer that question. There's no data to support that, none. Why can't you say what you might do if this was your dad? 
I agree. You know, what, I agree with that. That's why you're the expert. Right. Why can't you tell them what you might do um, if they ask? Right. But but again, if they ask, that means they, they're open to hearing more things. And, and that's a conversation you should sit down and have with them. You know, if this was my mom, I would want her to be really comfortable. And I wouldn't want to do things that would hurt her if it's not going to help. Right. So you've been working in this space for, you know, what, three plus decades now. Oh, yeah. What are the biggest changes you've seen? Wow. There's so many, so many changes in regard to the clinical piece of, of patients. You know, so many more machines we can put people on. I mean, we used to have the, the old, you know, eight, eight IVs and that's it. You know, we're now up to like 15. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have seen, I have seen docs more open to learning this stuff, which is really nice. I think some of it is being more into this stuff being how to communicate with patients, how to make sure they have the information they need to make decisions that they have to make. Um, I think I've seen it in med students too. You know, I have a lot of fun with the med students. I have, um, I teach in the clerkships of medicine, surgery, and OBGYN, and, and they have to write me a case study and apply of someone they, they, cared for during the rotation and apply ethics to it. And so I, I see them looking much more towards the communication piece. To me, communication is ethics. Ethics is communication. And, and so is palliative care. Palliative, mostly, most of palliative care is communication when you think about it. Sure, you have to know what drugs to give in order to get this pain and the noisy and the vomiting and all that stuff. But but most of palliative care is communication. And I have seen new residents coming in with a, a more of a background in how to have the conversations, which is really nice. I think a lot of the training programs are making this more apparent that they have to respond this way, which is also good. What would you like to see change in the next five or 10 years? Oh, Wow, that's a difficult question. What would I like to see change? I guess I'd just like to see more of the same. You know, there are some intractable docs and some intractable nurses. And the good news is they're going to retire soon. And I think this new generation is going to make a big difference. So the, the change I would like to see is nurses much more part of the team. Nurses respected much more for their knowledge base. And, and some time out, you know, everybody needs some time out and, and respecting the time out. During, during the COVID epidemics, one, one of the nurses I know had five ICU patients. That's just you insane. can't do that. You can't do that. It, it's impossible. You can't give good care. You know, changing every single time. Um, I would like to see nurses stepping forward more. Um, I don't. I don't. I blame the system on some level that um, doesn't reward a nurse wh who sticks up for her patient. So I would. I definitely would like to see that change. And it is. I think it is. I think things are getting better. So as we're wrapping up, Pat, anything else that you'd like to add? 
Well, no, I just want to reiterate that nurses don't own their own the patients, so they don't feel that anybody asking or making suggestions is an interference. I think it's been a wonderful ride. I have learned so much from the patients and families that I dealt with. I sat all night in a waiting room with a bunch of women in inner city Newark. And one of them says, and they were girlfriends and moms. And one of them said to me, the men do the violence and the women do the pain. Mm. And I thought, wow, is that really profound? Um, I also worked with a family who tragically ran over their 14 month old daughter in the driveway. Awful, awful conflicts of, I thought you had her. And, and, Three, three months afterwards, um, the husband said, I sent them to Compassionate Friends, which is a wonderful organization of parents who take care of other people. Um, they, they said to me, you know, we thought about hurting ourselves. And I said, I ask you that every week. What's going on? They said, no, we can't do that because what if this happens to another family? Who would be there to help them? Because there's nobody in our group that had this happen. And I thought to myself, whoa, <laughs> this, is, this is finding meaning in awfulness and tragedy. And uh, they did. Their, you know, their meaning was to stay and let me help somebody else. So everything I, I know and learn, I got from families. They, these people in Newark taught me everything about life. Um, had a, a woman whose third son was dying, one to the vi- two to the virus, one to the, the violence. And I said to her, I'd seen her with the second son and third son. I said to her, how, how do you do this? And she said to me, I went to Jesus. So my response was, go back. Mm. Go back. If Jesus got you through two other dead kids and now the third one, go for it. So I got strength. I got uh, empathy, uh, everything from patients and families. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Pat, for all the work you've done. I, I'm so happy that I've gotten to talk to you. I just feel like you've been one of the missing links of people that I've really needed to uh, reach out to to hear more about this story of how surgery and palliative care really can coexist with one another. So I just appreciate everything you've done. Thank you. And I hope um, to see you at the next AHPM meeting, if there ever is one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know I I met you? Um, did you, I don't know? I was telling you. I heard Well, you know why? They always used to say my nurse. My nurse. Right? So I used to always introduce Anne as my surgeon. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on the latest episodes. To learn more about the Surgical Palliative Care community, follow us on Twitter at SurgePalCare. If you'd like to get more involved with the Surgical Palliative Care social media team, please reach out on Twitter or via email at surgicalpalliativecare at gmail.com. Lastly, take good care of yourselves and take good care of each other.